Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Um, this is quite funny. They said, oh, by the way, there isn't anybody introducing you. You've got to introduce yourself. Hello. <laughs> I'm Fiona Main. <laughs> I'm from the University of Cambridge, and this talk is part of the Cambridge series of talks. I think it's the last one, actually. Um, it's quite interesting doing the nine o'clock slot, because who's going to show? <laughs> who's going to turn up to the nine o'clock? All I know about you is that you don't like yoga, because if you had liked yoga, you'd be at the other session. Uh, so um, the talk that I'm going to do today is about the power of visual texts and how um, the, their potential as uh, stimulus for critical and creative thinking with young children um, is probably overlooked, and this is just an opportunity to reflect on some of that and to think about just how powerful the story worlds that visual texts provide can be. Okay. So I've got a couple of key questions, and these key questions have informed my research over the last ooh, 15 years. Um, how do children uh, engage with visual texts, and what do they offer readers? What's different about them to texts that have words? So when I'm using the word text, I do mean uh, a broader notion than simply words on a page. I'm thinking about the whole multimodal experience of engaging with different kinds of texts, and that's what this is about. In the 21st century, um, we, everybody, children, engage uh, with all different forms of communication. We watch films, um, we engage in Twitter and Facebook and uh, Minecraft and Fortnite and all manner of different visual ways in different worlds that are represented to us that we create narratives from. And um, arguably, of course, this was the first mode of communication because there were, all, there were pictures well before there were words, right? But uh, this is um, just a kind of indication of where we are. So rarely now is a text purely one thing. It's the uh, book which has um, a, a great sense of materiality, where you turn the pages, you feel the pages. It has a multimodal aspect to it. But quite often, words and pictures are used together. So how do we read visual texts? Well, we still have to decode them in the same way that we decode words. We decode pictures. We're making sense of what's happening in a picture. We're determining the importance of particular features within a picture. We're synthesizing um, our existing knowledge. We're using, we're connecting to um, other pictures, films, picture books that we already know. We're connecting to our life experiences. Uh, we're connecting to things we know about the world. We're asking questions. We're, um, uh, we're synthesizing everything, bringing it all together. We're making inferences. We're predicting what might happen if it's, if it's a film. So if you think about the last time you went to see a film that you maybe knew nothing about, you were probably making all sorts of judgments about it quite quickly, quite early on, thinking, so what kind of, what is this? Is this a comedy? Is it, is it horror? Is it sci-fi? And certain things that happen in that film are giving you clues as to what this genre could be. And that's the way that we interpret stories. So we do use the same types of skill, we just decode differently. Um, 
And the questioning is crucially important because that's how we actively engage with text, with stories. We're wondering what's going on. We're asking why characters do the things they do. What are their motivations? How uh, is the story going to unfold? So in some early research I did um, a while back now, I asked pairs of children, um, they were six years old, to talk about a painting. And um, it was interesting, I was reading in The Guardian last week um, that Philip Pullman had made a comment about how once his books are out there, the meaning of them, the way they're interpreted, is up to the readers, because that's their engagement with the text. The meaning is made in this space between text and reader. Ooh, feedback. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and um, the... Uh, the, the questions we ask of texts are, are, are crucially important, and we might interpret things slightly differently. So these uh, children who were asked to look at this painting were asked simply, what do you think it's all about, and what questions have you got about it? So I'm going to share with you the painting. It's a painting that you might already have some sense of. You might have never seen this painting. But just look at it, think what it's all about, and think about the kinds of questions you might have of it. Okay, you might want to have a quick talk to the person next to you. Spot the teacher in the room. <laughs> you might come to this painting with some knowledge about this particular painting or other paintings like it. You might be connecting to your knowledge of the genre, your knowledge of art history, or you may just think, that's a nice picture like it. Okay, so I'm going to introduce you to Harry and Ben. Um, Harry, uh, you're going to see a video of them and it's subtitled and Harry's the little boy with curly hair and Ben is the little boy with blonde hair and they're talking about this picture. What, what do you think it is? Oh, so 
So uh, that's Harry and Ben's interpretation of the Lady of Shalott, and absolutely valid it is, because they make lots of uh, decisions about it. They justify their reasoning quite nicely. Uh, they say exactly what she's doing. I bet you didn't know that. You thought it was linked to an Arthurian legend, but oh no. In fact, she is just going and waiting to catch some, cash, uh, some fish for tea. My favourite bit, I've seen this video a thousand times, is there's the moment when Ben says, oh, it's got to be a canal. Well, why is he so convinced, you know, this importance of what kind of waterway is this happening? Is it a sea? Is it a river? No, it's got to be a canal. Well, these little boys lived in a town where there was a canal, so they're drawing on their personal experiences of what kinds of waterways do we know, and how can we just kind of negotiate a little bit of space, we're going to list all the things we know. So they list the fish, and of course, what other kinds of fish might be? Well, clearly... Clearly, there's going to be haddock in there, right? Maybe some skate. So they're making connections to their general knowledge. What do they know about the world? Um, one of the key things about reading comprehension is one of the things that fluent readers do that non-fluent or struggling readers don't do is they spot when they've gone wrong and they are able to um, self-monitor their understanding. So if you're reading something and you think, hang on a minute, have I just misread that? And sometimes you go back and reread a paragraph. Well, there was a point in that video where Ben mishears what Harry has said. Harry's speech is a bit of a challenge for him as a six-year-old, and he says there might be sharks. But, Harry, but Ben hears there might be socks. And he kind of looked, what? And so they don't just let everything go. They really do challenge it. Hang on a minute, that doesn't make sense. But most of the time, they're really happily co-constructing that narrative together and working on it together. In, initially, when I started analysing these, these bits of video, um, I was interested in what the children said, and that's what, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But increasingly, I'm interested in the embodied responses that they make. Did you notice how Ben described that the boat might go off, 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 off? And when Harry talked about the fish diving, Ben did the action. He dove into the picture. Dived, dove. Um, the, the, they experience, they enter that story world. They're in it. They've come up with plausible reasons for what's going on. Vygotsky tells us that thought uh, is is not merely expressed in words, it comes into existence through them. And it's talking together that enables an extra co-construction, as one idea doesn't exist with one person and doesn't exist with another person. It's created in between those people. They, um, they 
gradually build something, an idea that belongs to neither. It's something that exists. Would either of those children on their own created this image of the cat diving in to catch the fish? No, it's the way that they do it together that happens. So what does this sound like? I'm saying, I'm suggesting to you that this, uh, this conversation is an opportunity for those children to engage in critical and creative thinking. But what does critical and creative thinking sound like? Well, it kind of typically sounds like this. Um, I think because is the language of reasoning. I think, I've got an idea, and because. And uh, that's crucial. I, I can defend what I'm saying. I can tell you why. If such and such, then such and such, thinking about consequences, thinking about um, the outcome of something, so, therefore. So those top three particularly critical thinking skills, skills that are taking us to an answer, taking us to a decision. The other are what Anna Croft would call possibility thinking language, because it's the language of maybe, possibly, perhaps, could be. And in this situation, it serves two purposes. It both invites a flight of imagination, let's create that story of what could be possible, but it also enables a co-construction because those children are doing it together. They're putting forward a proposal. Maybe it's this, and that offers the other speaker the chance to agree or disagree or come up with something further or come up with something different. So it's kind of potential language, hypothetical languages. We just suggest a few ideas. And of course, that serves the purpose of enabling this, this social cohesion as the, the boys join together to list the fish and list the different waterways that this scene might be happening on. So there's lots of complex things that are happening just within this one tiny little bit. And here it is. Here it is in, on the screen. You can see how Ben says she could do this. It might be. Look how many times they say might and probably and I think and perhaps because it's peppered all the way through their talk. And this is typical. Um, all of the other videos I have of, of children at this age talking about um, pictures or uh, different types of um, visual text all have the same kinds of language in them. And then they do this, of course. How do we make sense of the world? Well, we make stories. We create narratives. We invent worlds. And this is what Harry and Ben do when they say, well, there's got to be a reason. She's got to be here for a purpose. And they kind of play around with a few ideas, and then they come up with the reason. Aha! It's all because of the fish. So um, that's just a kind of example of how a very static visual text offers a story world and opportunities for talk and thinking and, and creative learning. I'm going to show you now a film. And um, it's a short animated film. And I used it with, in a research project with some eight and nine-year-olds. And it was all around, well, it was, in fact, about teaching children comprehension, but using different forms of text. And in this particular session, they were asked to raise questions again. And just as another opportunity to see the magic of visual text and the opportunities they afford, I'd like you to watch this, which is called Once in a Lifetime.
Mike. No, come back. Uh, the director of that film um, was a very kind person who was animated and shared lots about it with me and let me use the images for all sorts of things. Uh, it's, we very quickly accept, oh, yeah, there's a boat and it's flying in the sky. Oh, and there's some flying turtles. So your knowledge of genre has set this as a particular type of genre. You know it's in the world of fantasy. You know it's not sci-fi. It doesn't have robots and aliens. It's got... But it's definitely fantastical. Um, the guy's flying along. He's... There's something crucial that happens at the start of that film, which if you're not watching carefully, you can miss, and that's that something falls off the boat right at the start, and that has stranded him effectively. So if you've missed that, you could quite easily misunderstand what the film is about. Where is that? What's going on? Why is he there? Why does he appear to be stuck? Why is it called Once in a Lifetime? What's the once-in-a-lifetime moment? And, of course, as that last turtle comes past, perhaps that's the once-in-a-lifetime moment. So the children were invited to ask questions, and the, uh, the teacher who was working with them explored some of those questions. They used the children's questions to take their learning forward. There's a lovely book by Justin Garder called Not Sophie's World, um, uh, called Hello, Is Anybody Out There? Something like that. And in it, there is a wonderful line, and it just says, an answer shows you the road behind. Only a question takes you forward. And I ponder that as an educationist, and I think, how often in schools do we teachers ask the questions and children give the answers? The point of learning is the point where the children ask the questions because they're moving their learning forward. They're thinking, what do I want to find out? So these eight and nine-year-olds were doing just that. So Ollie, quite simply, wanted to know, well, why is, why is the boat there? What's, what's it doing? Um, why is it flying? So why is the boat flying suggests to me that Ollie kind of isn't completely okay with the genre. He wants things to be realistic. So hang on a minute, what do you mean there's a boat flying along in the sky? That's not going to happen. That's not very realistic. Like all those arguments about Game of Thrones where people were arguing over the war strategies that were happening in the big battles whilst also ignoring that there were some dragons going on. So clearly this wasn't the land of reality. Um, so, yeah, why is the boat flying, right, says Ollie? So they talk about that for a little bit. Well, you know, and they agree that this is... It's a fantasy film, it's okay, it's flying along, and however, whatever mechanism is making it fly has um, in some way faltered. Um, Nina says, I wonder where the turtles are going to take the man. So she's thinking forward. So whereas Ollie is kind of thinking about the context, what's going on here, what's the setting, and why has this pilot um, been... Uh, flying around in the sky, and what's he doing? Nina's thinking forward. She's like, Where's, what's going to happen next? Where are the turtles going? Where are they even going to fly to? That's fascinating. Um, and then another couple of questions take a different stance. So Callum's question, I wonder if at the end when the man jumped off the turtle, I wonder if the turtle came back to save him, or whether he was just lucky. So at that point, the children re-watched a bit of the film, and was this chance? Had, the, had one of the turtles circled round? And then they realised, in actual fact, 
it was, they decided that it was a baby turtle and it was a little bit further behind the rest, perhaps because it was flying a bit, a bit slower. But wasn't the guy on the ship lucky that this turtle was flying behind? Brilliant. And then comes the one where you, as a researcher, go, yes! Because Lenny said this. Eight-year-old Lenny said this. Ooh, he's kind of got to the heart of it, hasn't he? Did he make the right decision? Because he had to leave everything. So the split second, as he knew that that turtle flying past was his only opportunity, did he make the right decision? How do we know? And so the children talked about that. And then they were able to talk about the, um, uh, the title of the film. Now, that could have gone differently. It could have been... The teacher could have posed all of these questions and the children would have done the answering. But how much further did their thinking go because they posed the questions, they actively engaged with this text, they thought about the world that it was representing in its story. Okay, so that's a picture and a short film. Um, I'm going to share with you now a bit of work that I did around a digital story world. Um, Guy Merchant uh, has, uh, does lots of work with young children and um, digital uh, games. And I, I love this because he says, well, look, if narratives of hidden kingdoms and parallel universes and alternative realities capture our imagines, and the evidence is that they do, then it's entirely predictable that virtual worlds or online game worlds might do the same. And, of course, there are many different types of digital mobile game, and some of them just involve moving blocks around or jumping over things and scoring high points. But there are also a set of games which take you into a world. They immerse you in a fabulous story world, an opportunity for you to become a character, because now you step inside the shoes of a character and you move around a world um, to be that character and to, to work with them. So this um, particular game that I used was Monument Valley, and I don't know if any of you have played it. Has anybody played it? Can I see any of it? Go and download it. It's fantastic. It's a couple of pounds to, to get it on an app on, on, a, on a phone. It is brilliant. And in the game, you are Ida. And Ida is a little princess. And you move Ida around this geometrically challenging game. I'm going to show you the trailer for it so you just have a sense of what it's all about. the game is that you, as you move the world around, the, the stairs and pathways align in a very Escher-like way. 
what was just a brilliant bit of chance was the children had, uh, these were 10 and 11-year-old children, so we're working up the, the ages. Um, these 10 and 11-year-olds had just previously done a great art project all about Escher. So as soon as they started playing this game, they're, oh, it's the infinite triangle, oh, we, the infinite staircase, we know all about this. And they were really um, into the geometrical design of it. The music is really significant in this, um, in this video game, and it's very... It has a poignancy about it, which kind of leads you into this mystery of who is this strange character? What has she done? You get the sense that she's asking for forgiveness. She's called a thieving princess. Um, this mysterious figure pops up at different points in the game and says, why have you wandered here, silent princess? Um, and there's a, there's a complexity and an ambiguity about this narrative which allows a space for you to fill it with your interpretations of what is going on. So uh, I had different groups of children playing the game and they all played it in very, very different ways. Some of them were just kind of, yeah, this is a game, we're going to finish it, I'm going to just press the screen until eventually we get through to the end of it. Some of them um, were so into the story world that they spoke as the characters as they were going around and squealed and made sound effects in a little bit similar to the way that Ben, when he was diving into the picture of the Lady of Shalott earlier on. Um, but a couple of the children extended the story world. They both immersed as Ida, but they wanted to know what was she doing. I gave all the children um, a journal that they could write their own thoughts and as, as to, to reflect on what did it remind them of, what different um, ideas did they have about it. And um, this is Wes's journal. And they, he sort of listed the different types of things that he liked to play, the different games that he played. And also his gradual understanding of what was going on in in the game as he played it. And he starts off and he becomes quite suspicious of Ida because he's not quite sure. There are these mysterious crow figures that seem to get in Ida's way. What's all that about? And he says, the crows are really annoying because they're moving and since we can't get past them, they block our path. This game has always got a twist or an illusion. Crows seem to be the only other living thing apart from us. So he's in that world. Us, me, uh, Ida, and then she has a sidekick character, which is a, a little yellow block called Totem. Um, the, the crows seem to be guarding things. He's curious about it. And then as he moves on through the game, he starts to become more suspicious of Ida. Who is she? Is she just good? Are the crows just bad? Is it possible that, in fact, they're not quite bad, but might be defending themselves. So his understanding, as he's creating this story world, um, changes, and as he reflects on it, it grows, and he's totally immersed in that world, and he is Ida, and he is moving through it. I spoke to him in some of the reflection sessions we had after they'd been playing the game about where he positioned himself. Was he... In his head, was he looking down on the world or was he in the world? And for Wes, he was very definitely in it. Some of the other children described that they were, they were above it and they talked about directing the figures around. One of the, the girls who uh, played the game talked directly to the crow figures and said, ha, move, little crow boy, now you're out of my way. And so she, she had this very omnipresent directing type um, a role that she saw herself. And I find that quite interesting. How do we engage? When you read a book, are you 
there? Are you one of the characters? Are you sort of traveling alongside the characters? Are you hovering above them? How do you engage in that story world? Transcends visual or written text. It's about worlds, really. Um, there is an extra interesting anecdote to this one, and I think uh, it, it happened really recently, and I'll share it with you because it, it was very, very powerful. Um, I have a group of master students, and uh, many of them are teachers. And I had done a session on uh, digital games, and I'd asked the teachers, go away and play it, you know, go and play the game, and then when we do the session, you'll have a sense of it. One of them came in and said, oh, I loved it, absolutely great, I loved playing that game. And in fact, today, um, I've got a year four, an eight-year-old child in, in the school, and he's having all sorts of problems. And I gave the game to him, and I thought, maybe this will inspire him to write a story. And she'd, it, she'd literally left school, grabbed what he'd written, and come to the session. And, uh, you know, I said, oh, that's fantastic. She said, look how, much he, look how much he wrote. So the first thing was, wow, look at the quantity of this story, and it was pages long. Then, towards the end of the session, when she came up to me um, at, the, at, the, at the tea break and said, you really need to look at this because I've actually just read what he's written. And his whole preoccupation in the story is about that Ida is looking for her mum and that she's lost her mum and she can't find her mum. And this just carries on through. I said, oh, gosh, that's you know, quite... She said, yeah, she said, the thing you need to know about this little boy is that his mum's in prison. And right at the very last, and she had she's been reading it but hadn't got to the end, and we stood there and we sort of scanned through the very final sentence, just said, I miss my mum. <sighs> so things that inspire us, enable us to perhaps communicate our own stories, not just creating story worlds in our minds, but maybe offer opportunities to deal with our worlds. How do we deal with loss? How do we deal with challenges and perhaps stimulus for um, uh, talking about these things has a potential through uh, visual visual text that makes sense so how do children engage with visual story worlds well they're immersing and enacting um, with spontaneous embodied responses they're getting right into it and I say how do children engage with story worlds but the only reason I'm ever interested in this is because I think that's what I do. I think I get in there, and I think I'm in that world. Um, and, and I assume that you probably are too when you're engaging in this way. They create and extend them. It's not just about being in the world. It's thinking about what else is possible and collaborate together to, to make sense of what's happening. So all of this um, has sort of led me to the latest project that I'm involved in, which is a huge said with one raised wry eyebrow, European project, where the goal of the project is to develop and support mutual understanding and intercultural dialogue with the goals of um, developing our cultural literacy, thinking about how we might all get along together as 21st century Europeans and what that means and what binds us together, what similarities do we have, how do we accept alternative perspectives on the world, because Europe is not a homogenous whole. It's an interesting set of diversities that we should celebrate. Um, this is a large European project. It's a Horizon 2020 project, and I'm very proud to be involved in it. What we're doing in the project is, um, uh, is using visual stimulus, wordless picture books, and wordless short films. 
as a stimulus for children to, and young people to um, talk about cu cultural identities, values, understandings. Because, as we say, cultural diversity is one of Europe's most valuable assets, and we need to support young people to build the skills and competencies needed for effective intercultural understanding, dialogue and mutual understanding about each other's lives. And I have to say in brackets, now more than ever, right? Uh, because this is our children moving forward into, a, into a, an uncertain future, certainly in England. Um, so the idea of the, the project is that we, working in classrooms around Europe, we will encourage these conversations and also create an opportunity for children to talk together with each other across different classrooms across Europe. So um, we've analysed lots of European documentation that, about, around educational policy to see what are the cultural values and how is culture and living together and how we get on in the world, how is it represented within these education documents? And we uh, have grouped the, the themes into these broad themes of, well, it's about living together and celebrating diversity and being tolerant of each other. Uh, it's about, about defending and promoting human rights. Um, it's about social responsibility being an active citizen, um, taking responsibility for, for the world, thinking about climate crises and sustainability and sustainable development. But it's also about having dispositions, because for all of that stuff, you can learn about it. But unless you are disposed to be tolerant and empathetic and inclusive, then we're kind of onto a non-starter, because this isn't knowledge about, it's a way of being. So. Um, we use the term cultural literacy, which has been used in many different ways, and it usually sort of means a set of knowledge that you have to know, and people have written lists of the set of knowledge that you're supposed to know. Well, we said, no, it's not that. It's about understanding each other and uh, reflecting on the way that we all live together and being disposed to think about your own cultural values and understandings before maybe thinking about the fact that other people have got different understandings to you. So we are working across the countries to develop a programme of, um, of lessons. We're using a whole variety of, of books that will stimulate some of these discussions. And that brings me to the final um, visual text I'd like to share with you, because it would be easy to assume that picture books are for young children. It would be easy to assume that things that have no words are for people who are not able to read words. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I hope that uh, I've already perhaps hinted at that already. Some of the books that we have um, engaged with are deeply challenging. And some of the films, whew, I could, I, there is one film I thought about showing you. I thought, I won't get off the stage without being in a melted mess of tears because it really is very powerful and very thoughtful. I'm going to share with you um, a book called Mediterranean, but we'll need to switch to the visualizer. Ah, as if by magic. Um, okay, the Mediterranean, it, it says, the, the little words at the start say, uh, it's this book. Um, if, I, if I do it teacher styley, I don't think you'll all be able to see it, so I'm going to do it through the visualizer. It says, after he'd finished drowning, his body sank slowly to the bottom where the fish were waiting.
Wordless books are sometimes called silent books, but I think this book is screaming at me. And certainly the impact that it's had on the people I've shown it to has been profound. The 14, 15-year-olds talking about this, it raises big questions. Um, at the end of one of the films that we use, it says nobody puts their children in, in a boat unless it, it's, not, it, it's safer than on the land. And I think this is an opportunity to, for some of our young people to actually get underneath some really quite important um, current events and what's going on and how can we use a stimulus like this then to perhaps engage their thinking. Um, so dialogue, of course, is central to all of this. Uh, it's about the meaning we construct together. It's about the way that we um, knowledge, we don't transmit knowledge, we create it, we co-create it, we negotiate it. Uh, and it's both personal and collective. And what do visual texts offer as readers? Well, visual texts can provide compelling story worlds, right? They are creatively used as springboards for our imaginative flight. We can pursue meaning through the creation of narratives, informed by the stories that we know, inspired by the visual. They offer opportunities, mirrors for us to reflect on our own worlds and lives. So actually, I would argue that they're an incredibly rich and powerful resource that we can use to enrich our literacy curriculum in school. If you want to read anything more about stuff that I've done, there's a book that I wrote a couple of years ago. And that's it. Thank you. How lovely. Um, I believe it's not red and flashing, so it's a time for... If there is anybody who's got a question, then uh, by all means do, or if you need to dash to the next session, then by all means do. Um, if you want to lurk and look at the different books that we're using in the project, by all means do. Thank you very much for coming along. Oh, we've got a question. <gasps> OK, yes. Okay, uh, <laughs> and I'll repeat it if you can't hear at the back. Can you hear at the back? Okay. With uh, the films that you've shown younger people, do you tend to find that as children grow, their interpretations of visual text become more solidified and based on perhaps their <laughs> real-world experience? Or, That's and to what extent do you find, because I teach at secondary school, yeah. if you're teaching 18-year-olds, yeah. do they just try and bring meaning should really slip you a tenner for that one because um, <laughs> Harry and Ben I worked with when they were six I happened to be in the school five years later when they were 11 and I thought oh it would be interesting to do the same thing with them wouldn't it so I showed them the film I showed them the picture all over again got them to talk about it again and then a couple of years ago I thought Harry and Ben I'm now 16. I wonder if I can track them down. I wonder if I can get them to do it all over again. And there were, there were Harry and Ben and um, Anna and Hannah, a couple of, a couple of girls. The, by far, the most creative, imaginative responses were from the, those children as five and six-year-olds. They became more concerned with getting the right answer, interpreting factually from the text. And I think what it told me that we need to create spaces for them, for children of all ages and young people of all ages to explore beyond. And I'm hoping that that's what this project will do. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right to identify it. So now let's think about the spaces within the curriculum that offers the open-ended and offers, offers the imaginative flight.
Okay, thank you.